Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Joey Klein, an actor and filmmaker making his feature debut with The Other Half, starring Tom Cullen and Tatiana Maslany as two broken people who find solace in one another in downtown Toronto. It's opening here and in Vancouver this Friday, December 2nd, after a strong run on the festival circuit. I saw it last month at Rendezvous with Madness, and it's very powerful and very moving. Joey picked James White, which is also very powerful and very moving. Josh Mon's 2015 indie drama tells the story of a young man coping very badly with his mother's impending death. Working on a shoestring in New York City, Mon took a fairly generic plot and stripped it to its core emotional points through a spare visual approach and the amazing performances of Christopher Abbott and Cynthia Nixon. Like Joey's film, James White isn't an easy watch, but then, given its subject matter, there's no reason it ought to be. This is someone else's movie. Well, I did originally think about Moonlight just because I'd seen it in TIFF and I kind of felt like that was more than any film I've ever seen in my life what I want to see in a film, Mm -hmm. but then I thought that it would not be you know like I don't want to say anything people haven't seen it yet if somebody does listen to this and then I was just thinking about my favorite films over the years and James White is absolutely up there for me with with Moonlight or Under the Skin or some of my favorite films and I guess I wanted to talk about it because number one sadly didn't really make the rounds as most small films I'm sure mine won't (laughs) and uh, I just I just in simple terms find it to be glorious and gorgeous and amazing and I love it and yeah similarly I feel like he made a film that feels like it's subject matter that opening sequence in the club I've seen it twice so I don't know if I remember it correctly but just Mm. felt like this kind of ominous pink neon unpleasant like you know some some place where you go to try and drown everything out loved what he did with sound the whole film especially in the beginning I was that dude yeah. when I was younger going to clubs and then, you know, being all depressed and putting my... And obviously he's not depressed, his, his mom's sick, but I, I really related to that moment of like wanting to be around people, but not wanting to be around the people you're around and just being kind of lonely in public. And um, I just felt like sensorially it, it was a wonderful film. And I know the editor, so I, I know a bit of a background of how it got made and it just sounded really... As an actor filmmaker, I just... I really champion what they did. Yeah, it is. I I, I missed it at TIFF because somebody else, I think it was Glenn, was on it already. So I just didn't have to cover it. And that's the awful effect of a film festival. It's like, if you're not on this, well, I'll catch up to it. You know, I, I, I did see it before the end of the year because it came around for awards consideration and still kind of amazed that didn't happen. Um for I mean, for Cynthia Nixon, if nothing else, it is that kind of pop-out performance where you get to see the standard package of actor lacking vanity and doing the disease role, but you also get this amazing performance because she really is great, and the movie handles it beautifully. It's um, the problem. The other problem with a movie like James White is that until you see it and you experience the style of it, you can't really sell it to people as anything other than oh, it's this kind of movie, which it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. It's it's. As, as movies go, as films about characters running away from their own problems and, and, uh, and, and losing parents to disease and all of that, it just sounds so cliched, but it's so immediate and powerful and ugly and painful. Um, yeah, as soon as I saw it, and unfortunately had to watch it on a little, you know, 
streaming uh, thing. Yeah. I'd love to have seen it in a theater. It must have just grabbed people by the throat. Yeah, it did for me. And I think it's funny because obviously every filmmaker wants everyone, especially critics and you know programmers and, and, and the public, uh, to see your film in a theater. I, I kind of stress out about... People watching my film on a laptop in the middle of the day with, on their computer speaker. I mean, to be honest, I, I just, that's just not my film. And similarly, I saw James White twice in a, a, a P&I at TIFF and then a public at TIFF. Oh, wow. And I, I was, I'm, I would love to buy it on Blu-ray, but it didn't get released Never on Blu-ray. Came out. I know, I don't get it, man. I mean, I get why maybe, you know, in terms of the borderline guys, why Campos or, or Sean Durkin's films maybe get a bit wider releases, but I don't understand why... It just disappeared the way it did. Yeah. And I felt like he said, like, yeah, if you're going to describe it, it just sounds like a downer. And uh, and and it's just not doing any justice to just how beautifully detailed and human it is. And, and I do know, because a, a friend of mine interviewed for it as a production designer years ago, and then my friend edited it. I know it, it is a, a very personal movie for Josh Mon, which yeah, I guess you'd have to imagine, like... People ask me about my film, and it's not autobiographical. But why would anyone set out to do it? You know what I, the story I told, unless I, you know, unfortunately, it's my life, mm-hmm. uh, not literally. But and yeah. similarly, you know, Josh is, I don't know him, but I know that you know, obviously, there was a lot of fictionalizing. But I do know he lost his mother to cancer, which I just also think is such a beautiful thing to do. Um, I, you know, I went to a method-based theater school and. A lot of crude acting teachers will say, oh, your mom died, use that. And it just makes you feel like, no, I don't want to yeah. use that. But wonderful teachers at my school talked about sharing people that are gone and keeping them alive, not in a hokey pokey way, but just in a simple way of playing personally and specifically and, and just being generous and brave enough to share that. And I think as a writer and as a director, he did that so beautifully. And I thought Chris Abbott was so good. Yeah, that I, I did not see him coming. I have to say, like as an actor, he's. I'd seen him in Girls and thought, oh yeah, that that guy. But again, this is just that that kind of performance where someone has found the way in. Either he's never been allowed to do anything like this before, or he didn't even know. Like I don't know. There are scenes where so much behavior is so instant and natural, and like he performs so many emotional tasks without indicating it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I also interrupted you. So no, that's okay. I tend to go on and on about these yeah. things because it's like I could, I, 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 I really appreciate how much that film wears its heart on its sleeve, and I'm a bit wary of how cynical the the kind of cool culture is. You know, like I know people who just ragged on that movie because it was like you know the scene where he's in the hotel room and he says to the kid. Cuddy's character like you know what would you do you know would would you bury and yeah like the language is a bit flowery on the page I'm sure I felt Chris Abbott totally grounded it and I had no problem at that moment but even if it is a tiny bit why are you picking out a tiny moment out of a beautiful movie to just rag you know what I mean like I know people who've called Moonlight low-hanging fruit which I've never heard that expression it took me a second to understand what they meant just oh, that it's yeah. the easiest it's the easiest I mean, it's so cynical maybe it's easy for people to get behind it because there's never been something like it before but that makes it special not agreed yeah, yeah. also a story about a black gay man in, in 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 like not maybe gang america but 
um, lower class in America. Urban Miami uh, over 15 years? Yeah. It's a world we you, we have not Literally seen. not. Yeah, other than it was based on a play. But anyways, I just feel with those two movies specifically in the last while, they're just both like total expressions and they feel like they're subject matter. And um, they're not easy to watch, but why should they be? I, I You know? Yeah. It's, it's weird that people... I mean, and by people, I guess I'm just saying more like cinephiles more than the average person because the average person doesn't even know this movie exists, which is right. a constant problem. Yeah. Like everybody, I, I'm telling people now, go see Moonlight. I've been telling them since TIFF and they're like, oh, what is it? And you explain it and it's like, oh, but it's not the one with Ryan with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. And it's like, no, that was La La Land. That was the other really good movie I saw at TIFF. You're going to have no problem finding that when it opens in December. You'll be fine. Yeah. This is the thing that you haven't heard about, but that is the best thing I saw at the festival. So you should go see it, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then inevitably they're going to wait for the DVD. So yeah. it was really heartening to see that, or, or VOD or whatever. Uh, it was really heartening to see people responding to Moonlight um, just this weekend. Yeah. The um, the uh, weird tension that comes up. Well, like now, I guess, with James White, you can say, well, it's got Cynthia Nixon from these things that you know her from. At least there's that. And it's made by people who are so, so concerned with treating the story as a story as opposed to hey it's a disease of the week or it's this guy who has some problems i mean i've seen other movies like that uh that aren't bad but they're much much more digestible i guess is the word i was looking for and james white is really not digestible it doesn't care if you're comfortable with the story it really doesn't worry about making a likable character he is like I felt for him and the vulnerability that Abbott shows instantly you know even in those early scenes where he's being a complete disconnected alien from the world that he's in the second his mother calls he drops everything like there's a humanity that's just sort of he's it's a movie to me it's a movie about a guy who is trying really hard not to feel Mm -hmm. and doing a terrible job of it yeah yeah yeah, I like that way of putting it, which is also just interesting thinking about what he must have been doing as an actor because you can't quite, like, like to make that active is an interesting thing because I think that's literally what he was doing the whole time. And is and what I love, too, is he's kind of doing that at the end of the movie when he's smoking that cigarette yeah, and yeah. this whole thing of the character always has to change. No, he's got to try and change. Yeah. But maybe, you know, that's as far as he gets. And I... I I I watched it with a close friend who unfortunately has a parent who has got um, terminal cancer. And he certainly felt very respected and loved by that film. And, and, you know, sadly, obviously, the reason I made my film is I lost someone a long time ago who I I love more than anyone. And I watch a film like James White, and I feel like, as cheesy as this might be, I just feel like I have a a friend in the dark. I do. I really do. And um, I feel like what I would hate personally is if he did make it like just straight up I fucking hate are we not allowed to swear on this I can't stand Silver Linings Playbook and and obviously (laughs) that guy's a a talented man the director and all the actors are talented but it's just so disrespectful to people with mental illness and in terms of making it about myself and my movie I'm so happy that at South by Southwest and at VIF a couple of strangers came up to me and spoke about why it's it stood for them. A, grief, a woman who lost somebody years ago came up to me in Austin and, and to Tom and to Tat. And when Tat and I were at Vancouver, these 
amazing audiences. And, and these three different women just brought up that they felt so heard and so seen by Emily. And, you know, I definitely know people who have watched my film and are like, uh, okay. And that's fine. Yeah. It, it, I, don't, I don't think it can be for everyone. And obviously it's, it's not meant to be. Not that you set out as a filmmaker or as any kind of a creative person to be like, you know, this is my target audience. Maybe you have to be a bit aware, but really you just have to make what you have to make. Mm-hmm. But I think what James White does that I would, you know, live and die for is, is it, it speaks truthfully about what that's like as much as you can in a film. And, and it's so respectful to love and loss and, 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 and specifically, you know, terminal cancer patients who, unfortunately, if you're older than 12, everyone has met someone. Yeah. Sure. So I don't know. I just find it to be like a glorious piece of art, I guess. Yeah. There's something. There is something really electric and uncomfortable about the way that it takes its time. I think. Like the thing that the thing that really bothered me the first time I saw it was how we're stuck in space with a character who won't die, mm. like who who can't yet go, and that awful feeling. I mean, I had it with with grandparents. My both of my parents are still alive and healthy, which is great. But I experienced that with my grandmother, who um, uh, did not tell anyone she was horribly ill for six months, and then finally went to the hospital and had, was diagnosed with a, with a, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was it's a stomach cancer, uh, and was dead in two weeks, two and a half. Surgery didn't go well, and she deteriorated, and that was that. But the sense of the speed that it, the way it progressed and the, the speed with which it took her was just horrific. But it was over quickly. There was that, right? Like, you, you just... You get hit with it in the face and then it's over. And you're, you're adjusting and you deal. But the idea of a long, protracted illness, and I've known a few people with that as well, um, without a familial connection, but the idea of watching someone like the child of a dying person the adult child of a dying person yeah. try to struggle with all of this stuff that I fast forwarded through at a remove. It's so compelling and it's so ugly and and the film deals with it with grace in an emotional way that doesn't feel fraudulent at all. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing where I can just see people running from the movie because it's too intense because yeah. it is presenting something that you can't cope with I think I think it's, unfortunately you're, you're very right about that and I find that you know that's where maybe I'm just a psychopathic seriously <laughs> I really don't know because I would watch that movie ten times in a week before I would ever touch something like Silver Linings Playbook yeah. again well and, but Silver Linings Playbook is like, I mean and I have this beef with David O. Russell that goes way back yeah you know, like, well his, yeah his films are yeah they're he likes the beats and shouting, right? To quote Star Trek Beyond, of all things. He likes it when people yell at each other and he can put the camera right between them. But I think I don't think he's made a good movie since... Like, Joy's not bad. But, oh, it's, but they're fraudulent. They're emotionally yes. fraudulent. He has, since maybe I Heart Huckabee's, where he's embraced this chaotic thing that's yeah. supposed to represent mental illness, it lets people who have never experienced it or known anyone with it come away thinking, oh, I get it now. But it's bullshit. And I love that you say that. That's oh, why I hate yeah. Spielberg with his Saving Private Ryan shit. I just remember being in Concordia and I had to see that film in a film ideas class. And you just heard like people leave that film like talking about the 
the beach at Normandy mm-hmm. scene where it's like, that's what war is like. It's like, no, dude, you just watched a movie. <laughs> that's not what war is like. Yeah. And however far James White goes or, you know, with how amazing Tatiana and Tom are in my movie, that's not what grief or mental illness is like. Grief and mental illness are like grief and mental illness. And if you're lucky enough to not go down with them, then, then you're a fortunate human being. And if you do, you're just part of the rest of the world. And I, I, I'm really, especially, I don't want to get too political. Obviously, I'm as scared as every other half-decent person about Empire Trump. I guess there just seems to be a direct connection between how low the lowest common denominator has gone. I know I sound like a, a haughty mm-hmm. prick. That's too about bad. right. Like, it's just, for example, Moonlight like mm-hmm. and James White, these two glorious, gorgeous films that are so different but have similarities. I think you're right. I think people leave and they're kind of like, ooh. It's like, what did you go see that for? What did you think? Of, did you want to see that just slightly more palatable? People always say they want to turn their brains off and enjoy themselves. And it's like, okay, but there are movies that are made for people who want to watch the movie, who want to experience them. Like, I don't, I, I respond better to movies that ask something of me. Me as well. Uh, I mean, you can make an entertainment that is still smart and you can make a drama that is truly moving and still fun. I mean, there's there's room, right? There's always... Cinema's a wide landscape. You can do anything, literally anything you want in it now. But, I mean, if I don't care, if I don't feel like the movie is at least as smart as I am, I'm just... Why am I even here? Yeah. Not... Yeah, I don't mean to go off track from James White no, too much, but, like, okay. Chronicle is, you know, it's not my favorite movie, but it's entertaining. It's ultimately about bullying in schools, and, uh, like, it's a pretty smart conflation of entertainment and social value. Yep. And, and I definitely, you know, obviously with my film or with James White, or not, not to compare them, but just in terms of their small dramas, obviously the main thrust is not, like, to entertain. But sure, of course, one thinks about that and, and one hopes to find, like, the, the, the place where that crosses paths. But not everything has got to be questioning that. And to make a film that's truthful about loss and love... And I would argue there's a lot in James White that's really entertaining, like the Mexico stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know when he's at that house party and he smacks that kid. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny moment and it's really well done. And, you know, he's like a... Yes, he's losing his mother. He's also an entitled white dude who's just acting out all the time. Mm. And I think they skate a really good line of keeping him likable. Because, yeah. per, I don't know, I have to admit... Like something like Simon Killer by Campos, as talented as that guy is, I find Brady Corbett so. The character is literally a sociopath, and he's such a sociopathic seeming actor. Yeah, he's too good at it. It's, he's, it's just it's a distancing kind of thing. In yeah, the movie, yeah, I'm sure they'd say that was the point, but I kind of like you said, I need to care in some way and feel like you said about you know that it's at least as intelligent as what like, yeah, yeah. Try just. Just meet me on my level is fine. That's, I mean, that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say, but also as a film critic, it's like, yeah, damn it, <laughs> challenge me, push me. I've seen everything. That's yeah. the job. Yeah, I want to respond to something. Um, with with um, with James White, what what you have is yeah, it's just. I mean, and someone uh, Glenn was um, telling people at the time, like somebody at his screening said, oh, it's another. When it was over, he said, oh, well, there's another white privilege story. It's like, well, point is, his mom still dies, right? Like you're still suffering. That doesn't. The background doesn't help. Nothing matters but what's happening in that bathroom, in that hospital room, in that hospital bed. Like, that's what it's about. How nothing that he has can protect him from yeah. his pain. Yeah, that's, that's so sad to hear that that's a reaction. Like, 
uh, are they supposed to just make them not white so as to like to me that's so disrespectful it's like mm. like we were asked at Vancouver somebody asked us about um, they brought up transparent and they asked me would I be interested or willing in the future to tell stories about two characters who either had a bigger age gap or like transparent you know investigated transgender uh, people and um, would, would I they brought up how Tat has been you know a real champion for LGBT rights and, and what would would she and would I would we want to tell stories of you know not just straight white people I mean number one transparent is like Twin Peaks or The Wire I mean you're talking about genius Right away, talking about Picasso. Yeah. So number one, I just don't even compare it on any level myself ever to genius. It's kind of an unapproachable thing too, right? Because Transparent is doing that. I don't. Why would you want to do the thing that it's doing? Well, but that's also clearly Jill Salloway's story. I don't mean like again. Right. I don't mean autobiographical. But this is something she couldn't help but tell no matter what. Exactly. And and, and I think that it's gross for a white straight dude like me to be thinking about telling stories about things I know nothing about because actually funders might have quotas for that right now. Funders should have quotas for that and people whose stories that there are that that, you know, that belongs to them. And again, it doesn't have to be literal, but people who wake up in the morning and need to tell that story should get the right to tell that in our system. But I'm going to be damned if I'm going to go out and try and like strategically tell the story of the black James White, because we do have, as you know, obviously in history, uh, an epidemic of just white privilege. And I mean, white heterosexual men have destroyed history. We like, there's no question of that. Yeah. It's but just what it, we can so do. It sounds cool. What? Like, they wrote the history, so it sounds cool. <laughs> so it's all right. Yeah, yeah the Re- yeah. retroactively, it's, <laughs> it's oh, written by the winners. Scumbags. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, did you know? Again, what am I, the middle-aged guy, uh, talking about how movies ought to be? But the, um, the point of, of, of privilege, the point of understanding privilege, I think, is using it to, to not to be an ally, but at least, I mean, you can, you should, but you can also get out of the way. And I think that's the thing that is more important right now at this point is that you can say it, you know, you can say let people tell their own stories in two ways. You can say it that way with actual encouragement and intent or you can say oh well, let them tell their own stories which is the other thing you keep hearing which is again the dodge it's the thing you say when you're not really interested but you're, you don't really want to care to see someone else do it either it's not that important like that's a weird place where people find themselves at these you know, like, yeah that's scary like, and what different can you say except i'd love to see that i don't think i'm the person to tell it yeah yeah and 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 i guess that goes to like this thing of like people saying james white is white privilege like his name is white that's kind of the point <laughs> don't you think though like isn't that a clear choice uh i would be curious about that i i um i don't know those guys so i wouldn't know at all i would i guess to me to be honest it just doesn't matter if they were doing that i don't find that in any way detracts from my experience and if it's completely incidental i i i do actually feel like that film completely Again, I know I've said it already, but I just think it's such a beautiful, important film. Sadly, everyone older than a certain age has some experience of loss. Yeah. And I think it speaks to it in a very delicate and true and specific and personal way. And I think in that respect, what does it matter what color they are? Unfortunately, you know, I think it'd be really disrespectful for Josh Mont to strategically go and tell a story about a black kid in the hood losing his brother in the gangs when he knows nothing about that. Yeah. And I don't mean literally we can only write what we know about, meaning I'm, you know, developing a sci-fi thing. I don't know anything about human reanimation, but it's a metaphor for something I give a shit about. Right. And, or metaphor, that's kind of 
It's it's just not literal, and that's yeah. I guess the actor in me. It's like but if it's you're playing the, a serial killer, it's not literal. You just need to know your way in. Right. And I think yeah, it's the device. It's he, it's the trigger. Yeah. It's just yeah. It's the trigger. It's just how do you make things as personal and specific as you can? And I just feel like it's danger. Like I know some white folks who are developing things that are completely strategically in realms of the world they know nothing about but they think will be more fundable and that cheeses me out man yeah, that's, that's, that's scumbaggery like that's five years from now when we're saturated with these second tier films that are made that way because they could get made yeah but it's like I don't yeah 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 but we can always tell right like you can always smell it I, I say yes. There's yeah. a poster design that gives it away. <laughs> like you can just see the iTunes page and go, oh, you, yeah, I know you. Yeah. It's an incredibly cynical way to see the world, but it's, it's so a cynical. defense mechanism I'm forming. No, no I, no, I think they're cynical. I don't think what you said is cynical. I think it's, I think things could be, I'm not, a, I don't know anything about, you know, the, like the constructs of how, you know, politicians make up the, the dilapidated world we live in, but I do have you know enough of a background in like a shitty Canadian college education and and whatnot to know that like things could just be simpler and everyone drank Kool-Aid with Reaganomics and deregulation and from there it just all fell apart yeah um so from that perspective going completely off topic no you're not wrong and and the absolutely the like we this came up. I think it's I think it's in this week's episode, the Lucas Neff episode about all the presidents. Cool. And it's like it was the deregulation of, uh, or no, it was the dismantling of the fairness doctrine, and then the cuts to education in the eighties. And this is where we are now with, with half of a country that doesn't actually understand why voting for Donald Trump would be a terrible idea. See, but I I don't mean that if all of those people saw James White, they'd be okay. But there's definitely no question that when. You know, obviously, unfortunate levels of illiteracy so high, and just this lie that people have bought of you know, like it's fine if Vince Lombardi wants to say winning isn't everything; it's the only thing in a sport. But when that becomes like an mo for living, like you smear that together with this crazy American dream ideology thing, and you get a real dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. And communities are just gone. Like I lived in LA; that's famously a place without communities. Sure. But it ain't just LA anymore. And and in that context and with this, you know, the Trump nightmare, obviously films like James White fall through all the cracks. But that's why I say even more thank you to Josh Mon for making it, to be honest, because it's not a popular movie to make right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's this weird place, that it occupies this weird place where it's about an upper class character who doesn't think he's upper class. He's sort of, he's not slumming exactly. Like, he doesn't he doesn't really understand his level of privilege, I don't think, because he never takes responsibility for it because right. he's never had to. And the contradiction of it is what's so frustrating and fascinating about him because he won't take responsibility for anything except his mother, who he clearly will do anything for and still can't save. So, you know, 20 years ago, this would have been an incredibly weird, slick 80s film about losing everything and finding yourself. <laughs> With Michael J. Fox. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 years ago, it would be... Um, uh, 40 years ago, it would be a Batman origin story. Like, there's just... The, the place it's in right now, the space that that film occupies right now is, oh, you know, New York independent film. That's 
a million of these movies now. Um, there was one with uh, Michael Shannon and Rachel Weisz called Complete Unknown that came out a couple of weeks ago. Don't even know that. Small movie, really small. Uh, Joshua Marston's film, the guy who made Maria Full of Grace. Okay. In The Forgiveness of Blood. Yeah, I've seen both those. Yeah, yeah he yeah. mostly works on TV these days, but okay. he makes a feature every five years. So this is that, and it's about a guy who's suddenly confronted by this girlfriend he hadn't seen in 20 years, thought she was dead, turns out she just reinvents her identity every now and then, and like a sociopath, and doesn't, wow. and shows up at his birthday dinner in New York, and he and his wife are, or his partner are having a conflict over whether or not they're going to go to California so she can study something. And it's all about how he really does have everything, and he's comfortable, but he's not happy. And what does that mean? And she forces him to confront all of this. And again, it's just well, it's a guy in a brownstone having issues about what to do next. But it's not. There's more. There's there's stuff you can re- you can reduce anything to. That guy has too much money and not enough sense. Yes. Or you know that guy doesn't have enough money and too much sense. And those are standard basic conflicts. It's how you build the world upon the conflict that makes it interesting. Agreed. Yeah. And to me, again, I just, maybe I rely too heavily on just how I was trained as an actor but I really like this school I went to called Circle in the Square and th- there was a lot of different kinds of, of, of methods of working that, that we were introduced to but the core of the school was a very old school New York method you know mm-hmm. and people I think start to think now because celebrities will like go with a cop if they're playing a cop that that's method acting right. but it's just about playing as personally and specifically as you can and I think that's what makes James White so successful is that the nuts and bolts of it are so true and they've been so loving about the details because obviously unfortunately know so much about them yeah. um, that it just separates it right away from I don't know now I'll be a dick and say like there's some movie that came out right before mine about two bipolar people with Katie Holmes and Luke Kirby and I saw the trailer for it oh, and yeah. I, I have to admit I just stand completely in opposition to what that seems like it is and and no offense to that filmmaker, you can see my film and tell me he hates me, but like, I just, I just feel like it's the idea of that kind of a film, you know? Like they're in the, the nut house and there's a scene where they're being adorable, but then there's a scene where he's having a breakdown and I just n- unfortunately know too much about the nuts and bolts of these things. Right. Just know that like I call, fi- I call bullshit. And, you know, I think with also, I haven't seen the Michael Shannon one, but with, with James White, Tom Cullen, um, who plays Nikki in my movies, you know, stupidly creative, brilliant guy. Um, he said this thing that I love when I was kind of worried about in my movie. Uh, on the fourth day of working, I f- he did some stuff, what we were doing with him playing the ukulele and then shadow boxing. It was all this long take. And I really felt after that not at all concerned about putting Nikki in a world where you accept that he grieves the way he grieves. Because obviously you say, well, like, unfortunately a lot of the audience will have lost someone and they've moved on in some way so how do they accept that this guy's this stuck and Tom said this beautiful thing when like when we were being interviewed and I brought that up and he was like well some people just have a hole in them don't they and I think that's the thing about James White to me is like I just completely accept him and everything you're saying about him is true like he is not taking responsibility for anything but his mom and he's behaving kind of poorly towards everyone and he is a white privileged dude but he is actually doing the best he can, and you see that in the performance and in the filmmaking. A lot of films try to live in the close-up the way that film does and, like, exhaust you. Yeah. And I feel like he really pulled it off, personally, because I think of the heart balance, you know? I, th- I think a lot of colder films that try it, for me at least, really alienate me. But the film had so much heart, and I think that with James White, I don't ever see this white privilege thing because... I believe that guy's doing his best and 
I can't judge that, you know. Yeah. Well, it's and again, everybody thinks their childhood is normal. Everybody thinks everybody's like that. You know, it's shocking when you're 20 to find out other people had different upbringings. He's just operating within. Yeah, it does sound like I'm trying to excuse it, but he is operating within the world that he has, and the world that he has is this weird thing about like bootstraps and self-reliance. Like he clearly believes that he's alone. Yeah. When he isn't. Yeah. And that's like that scene where he's rejecting his friends and actually forcing them away. It's heartbreaking because they really do want to help and there's a better outcome. Like his his mother will still die. That can't be stopped. But there's a better outcome for him if he listens and he won't do it. And it's just so painful. Yeah. And this is something we come back to on the show a lot. People have always brought up movies that they find compelling because they're conflicted and weird about the characters' lives. And it's always key to me that the movie understands when a character in it is making a mistake Mm. as opposed to going right along with it. Mm. It's possible to step back, and James White absolutely does that. As close as we are to him, he's still a specimen. Yeah. The movie is sort of showing how not to live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's oh, that's interesting. But we need to see it. Like yeah. we need to see him do this in the hopes of so we can root for him to stop. That's interesting. I never really thought of it in those specific terms, but certainly, yeah. I mean, you feel again. Also, I guess because Josh Mon is, I don't know how fictionalized James White is, but mm. it's his story. Yeah. Like you feel like he has a lot of love for for James, and yet, yeah, his job is definitely to not fall in love with his character and that balance of letting him fight without I don't know it's just kind of cheesy maybe but like on a level the writer director is the parent to the child of the character sure yeah. and you have to at a certain point just let the training wheels go off and let them go and just be a good parent that way yeah. I guess that's the way I kind of look at what you said yeah yeah I mean, was there a moment on the other half where you realized that you had to let the actors be the characters, that you couldn't shape any further? I think I had, of all the kind of things that are tough in your first-time filmmaker, I had the privilege of, of... I know I say privilege a lot, but I really do... You know, obviously you work hard and you, you earn the things you get with this. It's not luck, but a lot of people out there have a really good script, maybe much better than mine, and maybe they're a much better filmmaker than me. I, I had, from an acting point of view, the 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 good fortune of work having worked enough as an actor that I met Tat on a set you know and I had the good fortune that Tat is a really lo- uh, loyal person and you know once she got orphaned she didn't just say I'm too busy she still really wanted to do it not just that her and Tom and Bobby like sacrificed a lot really bent over backwards to make it happen well you were working on this for years I was working on on and off for years certainly yes for years but sometimes like they'll talk about it and I don't, it never bothers me but it's like well I wasn't working on it for you know like you leave it alone for two years and then you're like oh yeah I should get back to that or then you all of a sudden work on it for six months straight and then um, so yeah I, I got uh, I got a lot of work on it before I even met them but to answer your question because mm-hmm. I went off again on a tangent That's um right. um the one, I think, thing I didn't really worry about at all was working with actors and talking to them because not only have I been doing that a lot longer than filmmaking, but I think when you get trained and you just put two years of your life into that, it just gives you tools that, that you, you, you I wouldn't have had without that. So I guess, number one, you're working with such fine actors, so you can lean back on that. And then also, I found 
one of the greatest joys was that dance of when to like just let them go when to like it's it's largely I'm sure a lot of directors say this but it's largely just that thing of keeping the train on the tracks if it's on the tracks you let it go if it's starting if it needs to go a bit faster you, you know it's not I'm not control freaky and I've just worked too many times as an actor with newer directors who are trying to get that thing in their head out and I think that's the doom for everyone and I, I think you really have to trust getting in the soup with everyone and you know, Bobby and I were very prepared, so when we were malleable on set, it's because we had the structure of a very defined shot list. Tat and Tom and I were very prepared, so when we were on set, we had the, the freedom to play. Certain scenes were very formal, and we were very rigid with what was on the page, and then some were purposely more ad-libbed and more improvisational with the camera. Right. So I never was really like, ooh, no, that's not how I saw it. But sometimes, yeah, it's like just helping them fight for one specific thing a bit more clearly and deeper and more specifically. I mean, again, it's like to have the great fortune of not going on a set. We had 16 days, which ain't a, not a lot. No kidding. Yeah. And, and um, you know, they had some pretty hard stuff to do. You're working with people who are kind of like, I don't know, they're superheroes. They can just, they're so malleable. So it was never like shit. They're just not getting it. So how do you do that? It right. was always like, great yeah but just this one thing or what about that so yeah it's an addictive thing it's it's it sucks how much fun it is yeah because you get to do it once every however i'm kind of amazed at this the way it works now there's the more time i spend in the world i guess and and again remotely i'm barely like i'm a spectator at best but the the enthusiasm that people have and the way the energy sort of takes hold and how people get revved up for something that can only happen for 10 seconds that's fascinating and compelling to me. I just, I get it. I, I'm starting to get it anyway. I have this glimmer of what it must be like to capture it and see other people reacting to it in the moment. It just sounds great. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's scary, obviously. Like, I um, I was petrified going in. And uh, the very first day, um, I totally had like a, what felt like a pretty lengthy panic attack in my mind but it was probably like 30 seconds or something <laughs> I just remember Bobby coming up and asking me if I wanted to pen Tom over to the bar or or um, just wait for him and I just remember in my mind being like no fucking clue dude. <laughs> don't know anything I don't know why I'm here and then you just kind of realize no one's gonna die and you're just like oh wait I do know and it's the same with acting like I've been on a stage before and thought like nope I'm getting off this is <laughs> fucked and then you just kind of wait it out and it's fun I like the high wire aspect of it because there's no question I thought if I totally screw this up I will definitely never get to make another film and this means more to me than anything and also my friends have put so much into it I, I mean I definitely felt like I owed them you know mm. so it's kind of cool that because it's like I don't know man I guess I guess creative types we are all insane <laughs> we just are you found your channel you found your way through it yeah yeah it's a weird yeah it's like it's funny, man. You just... It's cheesy, but it is a calling. And maybe you never get better at it. Maybe you get really good at it. Maybe you don't do it the rest of your life, but you're still that thing. You know? And, like, it's a tough racket, but I would totally, you know, do it over and over again, however crazy it is, as opposed to try and, you know... Try to not. Well, I just don't... Yeah, I think some of us just, like, you realize, like... You might end up homeless. You might end up, you know, cracked down your head. But um, 
there's no choice. And I think one of the, like, you know, I did work on the script for many years on and off. And somebody said at South by, that's so cool. You're so dedicated. And I, I think it's delusional. <laughs> I think it's delusion. I do. I think it's healthy delusion, but like, you're just sitting in your house writing this spec thing. You're not a writer. No, you don't have any training, do you know? Yeah. Like just dealing with the voices in your head. That, yeah, uh, yeah. Or just that that thing of one must do that thing. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. Hey, your pooch is cute. Oh, is he staring? Hey, at buddy. Uh, the final question on the podcast is always the same, which is what of of this thing have you absorbed into your creative DNA? But you would have been finished making. You you had shot the other half already. Yeah. So. What was the experience of seeing James White like then? Like, did you suddenly realize you could do it that way, or? Well, since I saw James White um, when I had finished shooting and started editing, so it was TIFF twenty fifteen. So we yeah. were totally actually we weren't totally in the can. We we because of Tom and Tat's schedules, we had to uh, get some like MOS pickups in November of just like him driving the cab and stuff. But we were like effectively in the can, and we started editing. Um, I don't know. I, I had, the, again, like the good fortune of I know Matt Hannum, who is the editor of James White. And of all the things I really loved about the film, certainly the editing really stood out to me in terms of how economical it is. It's interesting. I've, I never felt the film was long, but um, when I, f- like, I figured it was like, I don't know, 95 minutes, 100 minutes, it's 83 or 85 yeah, it's really or something. Lean. It's super lean. And the editing, especially out of the gates, the sound editing, just all the stuff we were talking about with his music in his ears, and then coming out of the club, and then he's in the cab, and then that jump cut to he's, you're just so in his shoes. We already kind of had a real designer that, like, you know, you have to pitch when you um, are getting funding here in Canada. So my, my director's vision stuff talked a lot about what I wanted to do with picture and sound editing, and there was, like, strokes of that. But seeing it up on the screen done so effectively, and... Um, seeing you know a similar film in terms of something about grief hey buddy Dexter knock it off um and 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 cut by you know this really seriously talented dude I know it just kind of got my head going a bit more I worked with a really fine editor uh, named James Sandewater but but newer it only cut Sleeping Giant and Mm -hmm. uh, this was his second feature so we just have conversations with him about what their process was like and he actually did give us some amazing um you know everyone gives you notes your friends give you notes he gave us some like really really strong things we ran with at the very end and and um he had a big hand on on kind of how we finished our final lock and it kind of did come actually on a level from just talking to him about how he worked on James White and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this but um and if he does sorry but he um he said that they were kind of at like 100 minutes and they were con- they were convinced it had to be a longer movie and then they gave it some space and came back and they cut like 10 minutes out or something and they were at 90 minutes and like yes amazing this is our movie and then they showed it to someone who they really like respected and this person said I really like it but if it was 3 minutes shorter I'd love it and that just stuck with them so much that they went back in and found another 3 minutes to cut and certainly seeing it now I'm never like oh I just you know it's like to me it's a perfect little movie so that really stuck with me in terms of when we were editing our movie our movie is a longer movie I think it's like 98 before credits um, but it, it just always informed us in terms of like, we both loved it, my editor and I. So we were both asking ourselves just always like, literally like, well, what's the James White version? Like, okay. do we need this? What did we see in James White that we feel like is comparable? It really became our major comp movie as we were editing actually. And then obviously you just let go of all that and you just, you just kind of get in the ring. 
but it, it certainly did now that I think about it inform our process and um, I guess in general I just keep it in my mind as something I've seen that is something that is one of the few films that really to me is as cinematic as I hope a film today would be like that and Moonlight and I just saw Nocturnal Animals which I adored yeah, did I you see not, it? I did not like it interesting you're yeah. not the, a bunch of people I've spoken to Stephen, the filmmaker Stephen Dunn and, and his partner AJ Bond but they were at the same screening as me and I was like did that blow you away and they're like no he hated it <laughs> I was so blown away by no, it, it yeah. just, I love um, Michael Shannon uh, I was the he was the thing I clung to uh, but I found the rest of it was just so affected and so weirdly... And I get it. Like, I know that's the point of it. But it just felt like, oh, this is from the Lynches. This is from the Coens. Yeah. He's just he's just feeding on other things he's seen and giving you that version of them. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I never really... I could, I never felt plugged into it. And the, the, um, the story within the story was just really frustrating because I got the gimmick right away and it just became an annoyance to me. Mm. And then I saw Arrival... Amy Adams was so great in Arrival that I was pissed off that Ford didn't know how to use her. Interesting. I much preferred... Well, I just... Arrival for me was just... um, I didn't get it. And I do like some sci-fi a lot and I love Villeneuve's direction. Mm -hmm. But I just... I didn't get... I just read an interesting story about the screenwriter. It was like a passion project for him. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a great story. But I I just didn't really respond to that movie. Um, And I loved her in Nocturnal Animals, finally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's but see, I also really love divisive films. You know, there's clearly bold choices there. I could totally understand why sure, somebody yeah. doesn't dig it. But what I I really appreciate is that he's so strong at going after his own vision, and I just see such growth from a single single, single man, man yeah. to that. I really like single man as well. But yeah, and that's the crazy thing about um, what's his name Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Like I've never seen. Have you ever seen Medicine, Medicine for Melancholy? Melancholy? Yeah. yeah, but it's like a rom com, right? It's no, like a- no. It's actually um, it's weirdly tonally very similar. It kind oh. of drifts and it's just it's just immersive with these characters, but also structurally it's identical to Southside with You, the young Barack Obama Michelle Obama. Oh, okay, movie, I didn't see that. Where they it's about a couple that just sort of hangs together for a day. Okay, and they even go to an art gallery the same way that the Obamas did, which I'm sure Jenkins knew about. At like he'd heard their story. This was made in 2008, so Barack Obama's story was already, "Dreams of My Father" was out already. People knew who his life, but it's really, yeah, it's very much of a piece and completely different. The story, the the subject matter is different, but the tone and the intelligence behind it are really quite interesting. Interesting and, and, and very much in sync with themselves. Okay, I should yeah. see it, but I'm so interested. Oh, it's here somewhere. You can borrow it if you want. Oh, thanks. Yeah, this I would love to. The beauty of the Toronto Cinematic World. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Joey Klein, whose film The Other Half opens in Toronto and Vancouver this Friday, December 2nd. It'll open around Canada over the winter and in the U.S. in 2017. Thanks also to Bonnie Smith. She knows what she did. You will not find Joey on Twitter, but you can keep track of his movie at Other Half Movie, all one word, and you can find James White for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play. There's an American DVD, but no Blu-ray edition. Ridiculous. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is, I will be ready for life. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.